Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast contains explicit language. Welcome back to Candidate Confessional. I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis, Sam's low-energy sidekick. We call him here the Jeb Bush of the podcast world. I plan on fixing that. In fact, I'm going to fix it. You're meeting with your advisors this week. Yeah, you'll see. So in our obsession with political campaigns, we in the media tend to lionize the campaign manager. To us, these guys don't just decide the size of ad buys in Dayton, Ohio, but they're the oracles of the battleground states. And to be honest about it, dear listener, most of that is bullshit. It's a lot of bullshit. Okay, fine. A lot of bullshit. But Stu Stevens, I have to say, he seems a bit different from the bunch. That's right. He seems to understand that there's more forces at play than just a great campaign manager. Like a hurricane touching down on the eastern seaboard three weeks before an election. Or a bartender secretly recording your candidate saying something totally insane. <laughs> it's Which happened. And now, after <laughs> losing with Romney in 2012, Stevens didn't pen a tell-all book or immediately cash in as a TV pundit, which a lot of these people tend to do. I would have loved to have seen his chapter on, <laughs> on, on Orca. Maybe. Of course. Now, Stu Stevens went back to his hometown of Jackson, Mississippi, and he started going to Ole Miss football games with his 95-year-old dad. And he wrote a book which he described as a meditation on loss. So we figured maybe he'd open up to us about the world of high-stakes politics and what it was like to run the Romney campaign. So we invited him into our studio for an interview. And we talked about the difficulty of defeating a sitting president. And Romney's own limitations as a candidate. We talked about that infamous 47% video. And of course, we talked about Clint Eastwood. Beyond the bluster. Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stunn. <laughs> I'm sorry. Actually, I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. So I'm holding in my hand the last season. It's your new book, and it's predominantly about college football, your infatuation with Ole Miss. But there's a part at the beginning that, I mean, starts basically with the Romney loss and election night and this theory and this concept of loss. And I was struck by the quote that you have here, which is, loss is the key in which much of life is played. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how loss has defined your political career. I know you've worked predominantly with winning candidates, but how has it defined your political career? Well, um, 
I think pretty early in politics you realize that the pain of losing is far greater than the joy of winning. And then when you realize that, you have to decide if you want to keep winning or keep, you know, being a political consultant in my case or a candidate in other cases. Um, you know, I've always been pro-stress. <laughs> I, I like stress. Um, and I think stress is really important. Um, so uh, losing was always an impetus to win again. Um, the difference between that and running for president is the stakes are a lot higher, obviously, and also probably the sense that the person that you work for won't have another chance to run for president. Whereas if you work for someone, they run for governor and they lose, you know, history is they can run for governor again, run for Senate, depending on where they are in their career. Now, do you think politicians have a unique appetite for this, as in they can stomach losses more than people in other fields? Um, I think they're all different. I mean, I think some um, curiously are very conflict avoidance and uh, are, are not well suited for it. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton famously said in that letter that came out uh, written to one of her friends back in Arkansas uh, and what, uh, when she, maybe two years into the White House that people in Washington had a low pain threshold. So they clearly can. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of people uh, find it uh, something that they disengage for. It's one of the few things in life that adults do where it is definitely scored. Yeah. And, you know, in, in my world, say, in, you know, if you work for an advertising agency and you want to up sales for Nike by 50 percent and you do it by 49.9 percent, that's probably a pretty good day. In a campaign, you, like, jump out of a window. <laughs> <laughs> so besides prior to uh, Romney 2012, what was the toughest loss? Maybe what was the toughest loss of your early career that sort of set you in motion here? Um, you know, I did uh, a million, million years ago. Maybe the second race I was involved in was a race. Uh, Charles Pickering uh, in Mississippi, which is where I started, was running for attorney general. And... Um, we were, he was running as a Democrat, Bill Elaine, and we found out that Bill Elaine had been uh, in the Citizens Council. I don't know if you're familiar with the Citizens Council, but it's sounds, sort of a main street arm of the Ku Klux Klan. Okay. I was going to say, it sounds communistic almost, but... It would be the other way. Yes. <laughs> Quite different. Um, <laughs> and um, so we thought uh, this was something voters should know particularly African-American voters. And uh, we ran some ads that weekend uh, before the election. We found out about it just like a few days before uh, talking about it. Um, Bill Lane's campaign heard about the ads. And then on the Monday before the Tuesday election, on his fly around, he basically bragged about being in the Citizens Council. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he won. Jesus. Um, And I can't tell you that we would have won without that. But I really like Charles Pickering, and, you know, we lost by about 10,000 votes. Now, no Republican had ever been elected statewide attorney general or governor at that point. Um, so it was an uphill climb. But still, um, it, it was an awful loss. So you go through this. You've done a ton of winning races. What is your pitch to candidates who maybe aren't familiar with politics, knowing that there's a heavy chance that they will lose? Um, you know, I always tell people, uh, I, first of all, I never try to talk anybody into running. Really? Um, 
Never. Come on. There's got to be a golden candidate out there that you think, well, he could really win. Never. No, it's, it's a terrible thing because if, if they don't want to do it, it's always going to be worse than they can imagine. And if they don't want to do it, it just won't work. Um, I always tell candidates, um, if you can't deal with losing, you shouldn't run because the odds are um, there's a good chance you will lose. Have you dealt with a candidate who really can't deal with losing? Well, there's a lot of people who think they can. And then they get it, into the it's, it's like this pattern. You know, a, a lot of people will say, I'm never going to run negative commercials. In my experience, the people who say that think that they won't need to run negative commercials. <laughs> <laughs> and that once they find out that they need them. Or once they um, get the first one run against them. Yeah. yeah. Then, and then sort of the – then it becomes not a negative commercial, but it becomes like, you know, responding to something or voter information. Yeah. <laughs> um, I always think it's a terrible thing for candidates to say voters like negative commercials why should you tell them they're not going to get something they like yeah um it's uh look uh you know uh particularly running for president it's a lot like trying to get to the super bowl you know most most candidates most most teams don't and there's some reason to believe that 50 percent of the teams that do get to the super bowl lose so when you this brings us to the romney campaign then you your first meetings with him and the rest of the staff what what is the realistic sort of outlook that you have both for the primary and the election? What are the things oh. that you think are most complicated, the toughest hurdles to clear? Walk us through those first conversations. Well, you know, um, Romney lacked both an ideological base and a geographic base to win the primary. I mean, what do we know about the Republican Party? It's increasingly Southern, populist, and evangelical. What do we know about Mitt Romney? He's um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, those three don't match up. No. Um, and it was a time you know, when overwhelmingly a lot of very smart people said that he had to renounce mass health care to win. And there was no data to indicate that wasn't true. Um, and Romney just from the very beginning said, no, I mean, I, I did this. Um, I did it because it was the right thing to do. I think it was the best thing to do. I'm not going to plead temporary insanity. Um, I'll defend it. Now, I, I think there's problems with the way it's being executed now, but probably everybody who was governor and somebody else's governor has problems with the way everything's being done. Um, so he went out in that May and, and defended it uh, even before he announced. What we were doing in our state was quite different than that. It was a more modest proposal, if you will. And that was, we're not having government take over and run health care. Instead, we're trying to find a way to get people in our state that didn't have insurance insured. Um, you know, I always thought that Romney, you know, we basically had to sort of steal the nomination, that uh, it was a very unusual thing for someone like him with his background uh, to win a Republican nomination in the year 2012. Um, and I think when you look at it, probably Bill Clinton is the closest to someone who was further away from sort of a natural base in the party than Mitt Romney was, who, who won. And I think mainly he won it in the debates. And then the general election, look, um, when you look at it, uh, only one candidate who's not in the federal funding system has incumbent president and not in the federal funding system has lost in the last 125 years. And that was Herbert Hoover. One of the really interesting things I think about the campaign is that there are these um, instant 
conclusions that people reach. And I think like all history is wrong. Instant history is the most wrong. And, you know, as, unless as, it's on the Huffington, as, as you were saying, um, it, you know, we seem obsessed with a, a campaign for three and a half years before. Then we actually get something data called an election. <laughs> and most of us just move on to the next yeah, election. Basically. and don't. But fortunately, there are a handful of, of political scientists in the country who really study this stuff. And I've spent a lot of time with them since the race and a lot of time with their work. Uh, and what I think about the race today and what happened in the race is very different than what I thought on Election Day. Um, and I, I think that it's really important to look at that just because I think a lot of false narratives about 2012 drive our interpretation of 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, what, are, what are the false narratives you think? Are- well, one of the, I think the most uh, the one that really jumps out at you, you know, there was that immediate uh, conclusion, which made perfect sense to me that the Obama people uh, did a much better job with get out the vote and data. Um, their culture, they had six years, seven years to work at it. Um, you know, when we were running around like trying to win like Iowa, you know, and they were preparing for it. Um, but then, you know, the University of Chicago and Harvard did a joint study for 18 months. It's really exhaustive. Um, and it, it pretty definitively proves that uh, th- there wasn't a difference. And, you know, I don't think that that's a particularly positive conclusion for Republicans. So I, I, there was an immediate sort of, uh, I think, comp- conspiracy of silence in this because, you know, Republicans jumped on this because you could say we lost because of data and we yeah. use that to raise money, uh, which is a good thing. I mean, the party needed to up its tech game, no question. Um, but, you know, it's a more sober conclusion to come to that say 70,000 more African-Americans voted in Ohio because they wanted to vote. Not because they're persuaded. Not because they were, you know, some, you know, half dozen smart people in a cave. What were the other false narratives that, that, or things um, that surprised you? Well, there's two narratives about yeah. the Repu- about that race. Um, one is uh, that the Obama campaign was always ahead, mm-hmm. which statistically is true, and then they won. The other is that the Obama campaign spent all this money in the summer and defined Mitt Romney so he couldn't win. Both of those can't be true. I can believe one. I can believe the other. I can't believe both. Um, it uh, this was the first race that we've had since Nixon where both candidates are not in the federal funding system. Um, the impact of that running against an incumbent president who had four years to raise money not in the federal funding system was monumental in my view. Um, you know, they raised $1.2 billion. Um, so it, it makes... Uh, it makes it extraordinarily difficult. We came out of the primary basically broke. So Romney had to raise $100 million a month uh, after April to be competitive. Um, and it, uh, it, it's, it ends up in the result that 40% of the advertising for the Romney campaign was done by the Romney campaign. 80% of the advertising for the Obama campaign was done by the Obama campaign, the rest being super PACs. Yeah. And the way I, I use it is to say you have two papers that are both competing to win a Pulitzer. If one, 60% of your content, you can't edit a sign or have any control over, you just got to run it, versus 80%, bet on the 80%. <laughs> what was the lowest point of the primary, not the general? Uh, I think the night that we lost Colorado and Minnesota. Why? Uh, because we thought we were going to win. And, uh, <laughs> oh, you shit, know, there was a lot of, of uh, ex- exhaustion. Um, um, I think one of the things we're seeing right now with all these people running for president and a lot of operatives, people have no idea how difficult it is to run for president. Yeah. And um, it is 
the difference between play, playing junior high football and the pros. It sort of looks the same, still the same field. You wear like helmets. It's like the same rules, but it's monumentally different. Um, and I think you could ask like Governor Walker about that. Um, and it's a lot of battle of wills. Well, you talk about exhaustion. I mean, are you, are you, are you talking physically exhausted, mentally Every exhausted? Every way exhausted. Every way. Well, I mean, you're, you're exhausted days. mentally. Uh, you're exhausted physically. Um, you're exhausted because you want to turn to the general election. Yeah. And you know at that point you're probably going to win, that the odds that you're going to win, but you still have to go through this process. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's just a battle of wills. Was there ever, during this primary process that kept going on, what was the worst piece of advice you got from a finance guy? Because they're notorious for giving bad pieces of campaign advice. Well, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I had to deal with was um, uh, not having these people in debate prep. Oh, yeah. And I dealt with it. Um, it probably didn't make me the most popular person. <laughs> um, but... Um, you know, you, that's a, you, they wanted to get access. They to wanted the, to be in, the, like, give advice. Sure, about yeah. I mean, you, you saw that piece that uh, yeah. Ashley Parker did for the Times, where she talked about how donors were in these Walker debate reps. And that's influence. crazy. They, did they think it bought them access? I guess they obviously thought it bought them access. Well, I mean, a lot of these like people, a backstage uh, pass. A basically. lot of these people are very smart. And yeah. It's not that they have bad ideas. They just you can't. I mean, I have very strong opinions about debate prep, um, and. You know, you have to, you have to say no. What was it, what was the thinking going in when after you lost, you said Colorado, Minnesota? I'm wondering how do you then re-energize the campaign or the candidate to live another day to go at it again? Yeah, you you know, um, I think it's really relevant to win in this. You have to win. So the next chance to win was literally four days later in the main caucus, which wasn't anybody thought was going to be important. No one thought that would be important. <laughs> Uh, but it became important because it was a chance to win or lose. Yeah. So uh, I think you really have to give Matt Rhodes, who ran the campaign, a lot of credit for this. Matt basically emptied, you know, we're, cl- we're in Boston. You can drive to Maine in like an hour. Uh, emptied the headquarters and sent everybody to, to Maine. Um, and Romney uh, was supposed to have that weekend off, but he went to Maine to campaign. Um, and it was a caucus, so every vote really counted. And everybody in the campaign was assigned a certain number of people to call. Everybody. I mean, I had a call list. And um, were you calling uh, donors or t- random voters? At the no, point? we're calling uh, potential main caucus goals. Okay, so you're 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 getting into it too here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have because you know the numbers are so small. Yeah. And uh, it was. Did uh, they know that you were the campaign manager, basically? Are you in the campaign? The uh, senior strategist extraordinary. I just said I work for Mitt Romney. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was impressive because uh, you, you realize that something's important and it's not beneath you. Sure. And, you know, you're not going to win that with ads in four days. You just got to go out there and ask people to vote. Was that invigorating? I mean, it's like sort of getting back to your earlier roots. Yeah, listen, I, 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 I think that if you really do this, particularly if you do it for, for a long time like I have, if someone, you have to have the nature that if somebody says, look, you've got a one in chance, 20 chance to win, you go, what's the catch? Great. 
<laughs> yeah, we can do that. All right, so you make it out of the primary. Um, we're jumping ahead a little bit here. What did you see was the path to victory in the general? Because, um, you know, pretty tra- pretty traditional path. I mean, um, you needed to win Florida. You needed to win Ohio. Um, no, no secret map there. One of the first things you guys did was you did a trip abroad. Well, uh, we did it in August. We did. Oh, that was a little yeah, later. Okay. Yeah. Well, how hard is it to plan a foreign trip as a as a role well, a presidential? Um, it's hard. Um, look, I mean, I think if you look at the history of this, is you know, it's it's been written now about how um, you know Romney did that interview with um, uh, uh, Williams, Brian Williams. This is the one in the Olympics. On the Olympics. Do they look ready to your experienced eye? You know, it's hard to know just how well it will turn out. Will turn out. There are a few things that were disconcerting. The stories about the uh, private security firm not having enough people. What he said originally about, you know, he was asked, how do you think they'll do? Yeah. Was so unnotable that they didn't even include it in their package when they aired it. And a, uh, a Obama staffer who actually was English, uh, saw the feed and then called up, um, uh, what's his name? He's mayor of London. Uh, uh, Boris Johnson. Johnson, yeah. yeah. And uh, he knew a bunch of their staffers. And, you know, he's crazy. And, and, <laughs> and got him to go out and attack Romney on it. And, and so did. NBC didn't even think it was, I mean, it's basically Romney was saying what NBC was reporting. Yeah. And then they. And then Boris they, goes on there. He says, some bloke named Mitt Romney. And then he does it. <laughs> And look, one of the big differences is if you look at the reporters who were on the plane for Mitt Romney versus the reporters who went on Obama's plane uh, when he did his foreign trip in 08, there were a lot of foreign policy reporters on the Obama plane. There were almost 90 percent political reporters who were on the plane with Romney. And you think that's why you ended up with that sort of infamous now scene of what about your gaffes? What about your gaffes? Yeah, I mean, they were they were fascinating. As someone who has written a lot more than most of those people, uh, they were fascinating, really complex, interesting stories to write. And it, they were covering it as if Mitt Romney were in, you know, a shopping mall in New Jersey. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. And it just, it's what they knew to do, so they did, versus uh, foreign policy reporters would have focused on more of the, the, the substance, substance of it. And, that, and you saw the frustration on your end, not specific to you, uh, but in the campaigns, and spill out 
Oh, when what's his thing? <laughs> Rich yeah. Gorka. I thought that was funny. Yeah. You did, yeah. It was kind of funny. It was, yeah, it was. He said, "Is a explain it. This is a fucking know. holy I, place for the I, Polish I, people." I, 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 I saw I saw Lee Atwater put a reporter in a trunk once. What's the worst thing you've done to a reporter? Uh, you know, I'm not an antipress guy. Uh, okay, yeah, you're you're, you're uh, because sort I mean I I think that uh, it's not productive, um, and. It's like sort of arguing about the weather. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that it is a lot easier to push nine times out of ten a Democratic message and a Republican message um, for a lot of reasons, particularly one that's economically driven. I think that's really affecting the races now as we have fewer and fewer regional reporters. Um, and we have younger and younger reporters covering presidential races. It used to be covering a presidential race was the epitome of your career. Now it's a start. And now it's a start. And that difference is huge. Why do you think the difference is huge? Do you think that younger people are more liberal or the older they're more... Well, um, you know, I, I'm old enough to have been on the plane with like David Broder, you know. And, you know, Broder understood that nothing ever happened on the plane. That, that you had this vast apparatus of a campaign that was in, in, you know, intended to ensure nothing happened on the plane. <laughs> so don't get frustrated when nothing happens on the plane. Now... Difference is Broder only had to file one story, maybe. Today you have to file, you know, a half dozen. Um, but as soon as Broder landed, you know, say he landed in Tampa, Florida, he would call up, uh, you know, another reporter, say, look, I want to write about uh, Hispanic voters in Florida and what they're doing. Where should I go? And he would go interview, and that would be a story. And I think reporters today, you know, they tend to file what happened on the plane, which isn't much, and then they tend to go out to eat together yeah. or, or, you know, do it. And it's just it's a very different approach. Um, and, you know, look, I think the great book on this is, uh, you know, The Boys on the Bus. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the, the depth of, of reporting that they had, you know, you had war correspondents on there. You had foreign policy correspondents. You know, you had people also from very different walks of life. And uh, I think that that really uh, colored the reporting. Let's get to another story because we're yeah. a little short on time. Set the scene for when Clint Eastwood takes the uh, convention. Thank you. Save a little for Mitt. You know, Mitt had asked him to come. Um, you know, Eastwood just showed up at the Sun Valley event in the summer sometime, yeah. you know. I wasn't at the event, but I guess he just literally like heard about it and like drove up, <laughs> and uh, and someone's like, "Hey, yeah, like I remember, like I asked you, Parker, was there something like, aren't you Clint Eastwood?" <laughs> and, and, you know, she said that he like, you know, yeah, <laughs> uh, and so you know he walked into this living room apparently, and then Mitt saw him, and so naturally he said, "Well, you know, Clint, would you care to say something?" I don't know. And he like went up there and apparently said something that was fantastic, and then he showed up at another event where they knew he was going to show up in San Francisco, and he was fantastic. So, Mitt said, you know, you should really come to the convention. And um, originally, if he did come, he was going to speak on Wednesday night. Um, but, you know, we had to shorten the whole convention by day because of the hurricane. Exactly. Um, so it was a whole question of whether or not he would show up uh, at all, even the day of the convention. You know, even that day, Thursday, I guess it was. Yeah. Um, but sure enough, he showed up. <laughs> and... Um, Wait, are you, does he not have people who you're talking to? to like yeah, no, but it was always, like, what do you actually get on the plane? <laughs> I mean. Did you guys have, like, a replacement in case he didn't show up? No. No. Like, like a, a B-list actor? Yeah. No, no, we would have we shown our film. 
Oh, yeah, the good yeah. film, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is a fantastic film. The, yeah. You know, the problem with the film is, you know, the networks won't show the film. Yeah. And, you know, look, I can't blame them for that. I, I don't think it's an anti-Republican. They don't show the Obama film no. either, you know. Um, so then what you end up having, people, a lot of people say, well, the film was fantastic. The film was fantastic. But you end up, they'll show a piece of it and then they talk. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I was dealing with mid speech and then uh, Russ grabbed me and said, yeah, you know, we, we need to talk to Eastwood. And I said, okay. So we went up and talked to him. Um, he did have this sort of crazy thing he wanted to do. Um, which was to show this clip from um, this sort of a famous scene between him and an Indian in uh, Outlaw Josie Wales where they're talking about government. Okay. And I was like, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Why did you say no to that? Because you couldn't get the film rights in time? <laughs> it was just like sort of... Crazy idea? It was just odd. Odd. Yeah. I mean, no, no, no. You said, no, no we're not going to do that. No. But it's like a great clip. I said, no, it's a great clip. We're not going to show like the Indian from Josie Wales. And you, no, we're not going to do that. Um, so he said, okay, you, you, you want me to say what? And he said, you know, I can't. He doesn't work with teleprompters because he doesn't wear, wear glasses and he has these issues with them. So, uh, you know, he had this rap that he went through that he had said it, it, uh, I, before, and it was great. And then he was very specific. You know, he said, how long do you want me on stage? And it was, uh, I think, I forget the exact, but it was like four minutes, 30 seconds. And he was very, you know, do you want me off the stage at 4.30 or do you want me to wrap up at 4.30? I mean, it was total pro stuff, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and, we, you know, we clarified it. And, you know, that was that. Um, and then, you know, he said what happened. Uh, he just was there by the stage and decided to do this other thing. <laughs> I, I, it was baffling. I don't know. So um, he never said, I want to do this thing with the chair? God, no. That no, was impromptu, no. man. It was, no, you it got, was totally. Sometimes you just got to go with it, you know? And I, I was with Myth. Um, <laughs> it was bizarre. What did what, Myth think? Yeah, what did he say? Um... You know, I mean, at first it was kind of funny. It's hard to see what actually was happening, yeah. you know, on television. And, and um, I don't know. Uh, you know, his head was into his speech. Okay. Um, fast forward a little bit from there. Um, I think it was shortly after that the 47% video came out. Right here. It came out on September 19th. How'd you discover? Specifically, how well, we had that? we had known that there, there were these clips out there, you know, because they had come out uh, bits and pieces of it. It, it floated out there. Um, you know, Mitt was out in San Francisco uh, doing some fundraising. Um, I mean, it's just the kind of thing you just deal with in a campaign. Yeah. You know, you try to find out what it really was said. Um, What's the first time you watched it in full? Was well, it whenever that afternoon, whenever it aired, you know. Um, and we decided that Mitch would go out that night just uh, so it wouldn't look like he was hiding from it, you know. And it was okay. It wasn't great, but it was okay. I think it was better to go out than not go out. Um, if only, you know, that clip replaced a lot of the news shows rather than the other clip. And then, you know, he was supposed to give this, uh, go to this, uh, 
Hispanic Forum in Miami that was uh, moderated by uh, the the uh, Univision uh, Jose Ramos. Yeah, R- was it? Ramos. Uh, Ramos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who we had dealt with before in the primary. It was very funny, actually. It's a funny story about that day, but well, go for it. Um, <laughs> what was the story? Well, I mean, you know, uh, where I was in the Florida primary, he hosted a, an, and you know, he's notoriously contentious, and that's sort of his shtick. That's just his style. Yeah, you know, he's got an interview style. So there was this concern that you know he might try to get mid hot, um, and you know, he's in the middle of the primary. I mean, we were just exhausted at this point, you know. And it was at some university or something. I don't know. But they had catered, like, the green room with all this fantastic Cuban food. <laughs> and we had been eating all this, like, you know, kind of sandwiches and junk on the, sure. you know, on the bus. And we got there. And it was, like, unbelievably great food. And Mitt really likes to eat. So um, he, like, ate. Ate. And it was fantastic. <laughs> we got, and, and so we were out on stage. He was just like a, you know, a cat that had, like, eaten all this stuff. And he was just so content. I was like, ready to fall asleep. And then Ramos was in this great mood. And Ramos kept trying to get these rises out of him. He was just sort of sat there and laughed, you know. Because really he was funny. totally full. It was, it was <laughs> totally full. And there was this whole thing, you know, well, you know, you're... Right. Your father was born in Mexico, so you could be Hispanic, you know, yeah. and, and Mitt just started laughing. Said, I, I don't think I could get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> and then they ended up really liking each other. So I um, go back to the. Uh... So then he had a um, a uh, biggest Univision forum yeah. that they were doing back to back with President Obama, different nights. Yeah. yeah. So you know, Mitt was just totally focused on was nothing we can do to undo this. Uh, What's the next? You know, he's very much like a like a top like pro quarterback. I can't if there were an interception, you can't get that back. What what play are we going to run? What are we going to do here? And it, it takes a lot of. That's very hard to do um, at that level. It's very hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's just totally focused on it, and he was fantastic in the forum. I mean, the consensus was that he was better than President Obama. Yeah. Why do you think the forty-seven percent video didn't go away? Like it wasn't a one-day story or one-week story. Um, you know, we had this. Uh, interesting um, piece of uh, uh, data gathering um, that Alex Gage's company produced that had a, a proprietary logarithm that uh, gathered uh, sort of everything on the net, Google searches, Facebook, Twitter, and it would graph it out. And we would look at this a couple of times a day. And it was very interesting because it was both predict, it was both informative and predictive. And you could see the depth of uh, the discussion on the web about an issue. And you could see right away at the 47%, you know, it's kind of exploded and, and that it would stay for a while. So you just, you know, had to deal with it. Um, you know, I, I, it, I don't know, it was an interesting piece of video. He was saying something. Um, you know, I don't think it's surprising. I, I don't think it made any difference in the race. Was there anything you thought of to get it off front page, so to speak? Well, um, you know, he did this this Hispanic thing, and then we had the debate coming up. Yeah. Well, that brings us me to the debate. That was like the, you know, one of the high points of the campaign, I would objectively yeah. say. Um, what's it like watching it, having gone through all that preparation and then seeing someone who you've worked with just really nail it like that? Well, you're not thinking about how he's nailing it. Um, you know, with Mitt, uh, one of his... his uh, one of the reasons he's really good at this is all he focuses on is what he's doing wrong. And when he gets out of a debate, 
and we had a million debates, you know, yeah. uh, all he wants to talk about is, you know, I don't think I really nailed this. You know, if I had gone two questions deep, I don't know what I would have said, you know. Um, you know, what, what is it, what's, what's the real argument here? What is it we're really trying to say? Not like, hey, you were great here, you were great there. It's like Jason on a story. So, basically. you know. Never happy. You know, I mean, he just is very <laughs> self, he's very self-critical. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the reasons he was a great success in business. Sure. You know, it's not like why this will work, it's why it might not work, and then what do you do to fix it? Um, so I was just focused on things that I thought that, you know, could be better. Um, you didn't even in the moment say, wow, this shit is going really well. You don't really think about that. No. I mean, I mean uh, he just, uh, you know, we were just, no, I mean, you know, it was, yeah, it went well, but, um, you know, there was some. It's 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 the way you watch game film. You know, you look at what you you know, blocks that could have been better, passes that were dropped. You know, it doesn't really. You don't say, "Hey, we're winning big." You know, it's just all about like what could be better. Were there things that he was sort of pretty consistently self conscious about messing up, or that he always thought, you know, I always could do better at this answer or this saying it this way or that kind of thing? Um, he, you know, he felt that way about everything. <laughs> <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't have one weakness that gnawed on him that he... Uh, well, you know, um, you know, Mitt was never very comfortable talking about uh, wealth. You know, he grew up in a family where very, very much the greatest good was not wealth. And it was really uh, not their value structure. And, you know, he's given vast fortunes to charity. Um and if you look in the Boston area, you can't find one thing that has Mitt Romney's name on it. And there are a lot of things that they did in charities that they never were comfortable talking about. Mm. I mean, just because... And it was something that, you know, a lot of people would say, you know, what you should say is, look, I remember we had a, a conversation, Tim Bellini was in one of our debate preps, and he goes, look, Mitt, you should just say, look, I made a lot of money. I think it's great. I think a lot of other people ought to make money. Um, and that's what you ought to say. I mean, it's, you know... You do that really well, but I just, <laughs> I mean, what you're really arguing, or am I really saying is that because I made money, I should be a better president? I'm a better person? You go, no, that's not what you're saying. But you say, isn't it really? So if instead of making money, I become like a teacher, and I, I would be saying, I'd be the same person. But so I would say, you're going to vote for me because I made money. Exactly what Donald Trump is saying. Vote for me because I made a lot of money. It's like Trump with the conscience. You know? and, and, and he just, it just, it was just something that he felt, you know, it's part of his religion uh, and his sort of moral structure that you don't brag about these things. That you, and you don't do good to a purpose. You do good to do good. Was, was, was he also self-conscious at all about the media sort of caricature of him as sort of this stiff guy or he's not sort of spontaneous or he's, you know, very much in the way that Hillary is being portrayed now, he seemed to have gotten a little bit of that. I, he was he was more, as you saw in the film, about the idea that he flip-flopped on stuff. He hated, he hated that label? Yeah, and, um, you know, uh, in business, you change your mind all the time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was sort of being judged by one set of standards rather than another. Um you know, there was a moment uh, actually in a primary debate in Michigan where we were in a debate prep. And, you know, I said, I said you know, I don't get this because you're, you're, the, you're the most steady person I know. 
I mean, you've been married to the same woman. You've had the same job. I mean, if anybody is the most reliable person. And we used to ask this question uh, in the primary. Uh, after the debates, we'd ask people, regardless of who you would vote for president, if you uh, had to, if your family was in trouble, which person would you turn to to help? Mm-hmm. And Mitt would win that overwhelmingly. And we would ask, if you were sending your child across the country for their first job or to go to school, which of these people would you want uh, to be someone who would help look after your child? And Mitt would win that overwhelmingly. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting. Well, he surprised. had money. No, I'm surprised <laughs> Newt, Newt came in a close second. And, uh, <laughs> he, and so he gave this answer, you know, when he got asked about flip-flopping. He goes, you know, I, and he kind of killed it. And we really kind of, the question, he basically said, I've been married. I've been in the same church. Yeah. Um, you know, he kind of said, I, I'm boring. So when did you know uh, that you were going to lose? Well, you know, I never felt very good about the race. We, we were never ahead in our polls. The yeah. public polls were much better. Uh, you know, there's been a lot. If you, if you look at the last Wall Street Journal New York Times poll, it had a 1,400 and something sample. It had seven-vote difference. This idea that, uh, you know, the Romney poll showed him winning, it's just not true. I, I sort of don't know how this has gotten out there. Um, you know, uh, we never had a uh, major natural disaster six days before a presidential race. An historic storm is about to make landfall. Hurricane Sandy taking direct aim at southern New Jersey right now. Tens of millions of people are feeling the impact, including uh, flooding that will only get worse in the coming hours and days. You know, it's a very difficult thing to discuss with anybody because they immediately start asking, what do you think you would have won without that? Yeah. And there's no universe where there was not Sandy. Every time I've ever defeated an incumbent, it's like an NBA game at the end, close. You have to control the ball. So it took away your ability to control the ball. Now, it's not to say that, you know, on that Thursday, you wouldn't have gone out and said something really stupid and lost by more. You don't know. But it it took away that ability. And that number uh, that we've been tracking all along about uh, uh, something like uh, feels your pain or whatever that number that showed that he had a huge deficit in the uh, exit polls. That was he was always losing that, but losing it by sort of standard Republican numbers, ten to fifteen points, and then it skyrocketed during uh, Sandy in Obama's favor. And if you look at the exit polls, sixteen percent of the people listed Sandy as their number one reason for voting for Obama. Sixteen percent, and twenty-eight percent said it was in their top three. Now that includes the sixteen percent. Um, it definitely had a huge impact. So was it when that, the aftermath of that storm that you said we're not going to? You know, you, you just go from having, you know, being able to formulate a closing argument to sitting in a hotel room watching the president get overwhelmingly positive reviews. Pulling your hair out. And there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, we always track uh, seen, read, or heard. And the seen, read, or heard was very negative for Obama. They were in all this sort of crazy stuff. What was it they were saying uh, about romnesia? Yeah. All this sort of gibberish, you know, it wasn't working. And then they just, you know, had something they could talk about that worked. Um, So, I mean, I think that it definitely cost us Florida. I think it definitely cost us Virginia. I can't tell you it cost us Ohio. I can't tell you it cost us Colorado. There's a piece in this book about on election night you're getting. I was getting numbers from small courthouses around Ohio. I found myself starting to think more about loss. Doing a presidential campaign is all about pain um, at that level. I mean, there's nothing, there's very few things about it unpainful. 
I mean, you sleep maybe four or five hours a night. You don't, if you really do it right, you don't have a life. Um, it's all about pain. Um, now I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of pain friendly. I, I do a lot of like endurance stuff where I, I don't think you should run from pain. I don't, I don't think pain's a bad thing, but, um, you know, there's a sadness in my case, you know, I, I really had come to feel, uh, very close to Mitt and I just felt that I had really a sense of disappointment was my initial reaction for him that I'd let someone down and you know people say well you took this very personally you know it wasn't your fault you know I went out, I've said this before blame me thank you to Stu Stevens for coming into our studio and talking to us about the Romney campaign you can get his book, The Last Season, A Father, a Son, and a Lifetime of College Football on Amazon.com. Also, thanks to Christine Canada, our fearless editor who put together this podcast. You can get versions of Candidate Confessional on iTunes, or you can go to TheHuffingtonPost.com. Next week on Candidate Confessional, we bring you gubernatorial candidate from Texas, Wendy Davis. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.